that, okay, I might actually be giving away some alpha there. So. <laughs> I'm fascinated to know if that, that, the CA they had signed was signed before Pre-dated. West Gold um, lobbed their hostile bid. Uh, I think I remember this because I saw you guys. I heard you guys talking about it in one of the, the podcasts. Are you pretty actively trying to negotiate the kicker outcome, even though it's IDO bidding against itself at this point? Um, initially, uh, we're not. We, we don't come onto the register immediately to kind of, you know, um, force a higher price or anything like that. It was just the, the confluence of circumstances for this particular transaction. The fact that, that Wilo is buying higher and the independent expert says it's not fair gives you enough to substantiate an argument to get a kicker. Yeah, it is. It's a simple call from there to yeah. you know, go to the company. What's going on? Is there a collateral benefit to shareholders? What can be done about this? Because clearly one camp's being offered something that's not being offered to everyone else. G'day, Money Miners, Friday 22nd. Oh, no, maybe it's going to be Saturday. Mm-hmm. Either one. Is Either it? or. This might be out Saturday. <laughs> oh, well. You might even listen to it on Sunday. You are officially, you can listen to it whenever you want. The beauty of podcasts, on-demand service. It yeah. ain't live TV. And this and episode, gents. it'll have, you know, enduring value. Plenty to learn from this one, mate. Mm. mate. We've got another interview in store. Jeez, uh, your boys worked hard while I was in Sydney, Appreciate that, by the way. I didn't bring much of the business while I was over there, except socialising <laughs> with brokers. BD. Mate, so we've got. Let me let me just run through it based on not being in the interview. Ben Bailey mm-hmm. from Harvest Lane Asset Management. Asset Asset Management. Yeah, yeah they fly under the radar and a little bit. M and, so you'd say they're an M and A fund. Yeah, it would predominantly they get involved in transactions when a deal's been announced, as we'll get into in a big way in in the interview. We'll go all into the sort of weeds of the strategy and what they, you know, what they look at, everything. Australia focused, started roughly 10 or so years ago. The guys are Sydney based. Yeah. Yeah. And because they get involved in live deals, that's how they make money. They actually understand the nature of deals almost better than anyone else. And I think that's what we pry into in this conversation. Yeah, right. I know you just give a bit of a prelude, but it's one of the big fascinating things that people always hear about the word, the arbitrage Arbitrage is a strategy, there's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm fascinated to hear about this. Yeah, and they uh, were involved in plenty of the deals we've spoken about over the last four or five odd months, you know. They've been involved. They We speak about Mincor, mm-hmm. Romelius, and uh, the Musgrave sort of tie-up we chat about. So plenty they, of interesting they stuff. They play our show in the office, Matty. So. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> GCs. I find out a lot of people that pay us, play us on the big screen. <laughs> and, when, and when they're in bed. <laughs> Very weird. <Yeah. laughs> right, partners for the show. Speaking of a couple of GCs that's probably ripped a few arbitrages in their time. There's a bit of an investment bloody uptick before the weekend. Langers and Bondi at Terra Capital, our great friends of the show. Mm. They are great. They are great. They're yeah. just great. But, uh, yeah, arbitrage, they're buying low and selling high all the time, mate. Yeah. yeah. They are, and they are a purely natural resource-focused fund, unlike Harvest Lane, who we speak with today. They, they float around, you know, different sectors and whatnot. Yep. But, yeah, thanks a lot, Terry Capital, for sponsoring the show. Good job on talking about their business, JD, instead of me just talking about Langers and Bondi being GCs. After a couple of months, people might actually know what they do. I'll be like, ah. I'll tell you another company I don't know what they do. Anytime expiration. I'll tell you he's a GC as well. Seamus Murphy. He does anything, anytime, anywhere, but we'll probably specifically we could hone in on uh, ex- like expiration GOs, expiration equipment. What the- is core cutting, by the way? Oh, they just cut core. Okay. 
Yeah, the 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 drill core. Oh. they just cut you, it. You send I a quarter, they... send half off to the lab. These guys will cut it for you. They'll put it in the shed for you. Everything. Oh, yep. Chuck it in. Well, I'll be sample, calling Seamus anytime for that. Sample now. sample bags for the RC chips. Just bloody, mate. They could probably take it. Take take your lunch over. They'll probably cut that for you too if they want. Beauty. <laughs> Cheers anytime. Cheers anytime. Right, let's Rip get it. into it. Ben Bailey from Harvest Lane. Here we go. JD, I'm pretty excited about today's conversation, mate. We've got a um a pretty damn interesting guest with us on the on the blower right now. His name is Ben Bailey. And he's a portfolio manager at Harvest Lane Asset Management. I'm gonna convey why I'm pretty damn excited to um to chat with Ben. There's a few reasons. One of them is actually just the way that this conversation has come about. Ben is, uh, you know, in addition to to being a very active participant um, from a from an institutional um, lens, he's also in the Hootero group chat, and he's he's um, lent his ex- lent his expertise a couple of times when it's uh, come come around to talking about like the dynamics of how companies trade amidst a live transaction. What, you know, what's the share price doing? What does that mean? Um, and Ben's actually given a bit of insight there. And that's the context around how this conversation is going to happen because um, I think Ben's going to explain some you know, details of, of live transactions that aren't immediately obvious to most participants mm. of, of the ben, market. Ben has been referred to in, in the AFR, but I like to think this is another fundy we've managed to uh, <laughs> coax into an interview, which is, which is awesome. They're all coming out of their shells for money of mine. Welcome, Ben. Cheers, boys. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, huge respect for what you guys have been doing over the last few months and, and all that. So pretty keen to get on and, you know, it's sort of um, help out, see if we can add value to the conversations that you guys are putting out there. It's wicked. It, it really reflects, in my mind at least, the real ethos of the Hootero Group chat, mate, which is um, mutual education. Uh, and I, I appreciate that immensely, the fact that you're kind of willing to um, lend your expertise and also come on the potty and explain stuff. Maybe, you know, you might actually be um, telling others about your alpha, which is never a good sign. You might erode it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, we had a bit of a chat internally. I don't think, you know, explaining the mechanics of how these things kind of work, I don't think that's necessarily where our edge are. It's not one of the most complicated strategies. Um, you know, we're not out there doing sort of derivative, you know, options sort of strategies and all that. So um, I think we get our edge in different areas. So, yeah, happy to have a chat and, and sort of walk it through. Although I will point out you've, I reckon you guys might have sold me up the river a little bit following on from the Rusty conversation yesterday. That's a bit of a tough act to follow. So <laughs> that, was, that was a wicked chat, wasn't it? It was. Uh, that was that was a very good one. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. What did good you stuff there? What did you what did you what did you take away from the Rusty chat, Ben? Um, oh, speaks a bit of truth. I mean, we've obviously encountered similar issues, um, you know, in our time dealing with companies as well. Um, so. You know, full credit to him to actually, you know, making it known and, and raising the issue. Yeah, I mean, um, you're right. You both, both, like, because you get involved in the midst of a live transaction, and sometimes they're trying to negotiate with boards to, um, you know, get an uplift or a, or a different deal in the door or something of the likes, which means you're negotiating with the same people, and those instances might be problematic to to deal with. Yeah, I mean, we we've inserted ourselves on occasion, you know, where we've. Uh, I guess felt it necessary to um, to do so. You got to remember in some of these smaller companies that um, you know the ones that we kind of deal with. I, I guess on um, the most frequent basis would be you know your small to mid market cap type companies as well. Um, typically, the acquisitions are happening by 
bigger bidders who've got a lot more funding to put on to lawyers and advisors and all that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, they're smaller companies. It all comes out of the the bottom line, you know, the, the kitty that they have to draw on. So they're not necessarily paying for perhaps the best advice they can get, you know, the best legal advice or financial advice, um, you know, and, and some of these guys on the boards don't necessarily have, you know, the full M&A skill set. Um, you know, they might be mining guys, they might be in different industries, um, you know, their skills are, you know, getting projects up and running um, and not necessarily dealing with corporate suitors or anything like that. So, um, you're, you're, look, you're being nice. You're saying they're incompetent, not um, malicious. Yes, so Ben, we've yeah. we've alluded to this sort of strategy that you have. It's it's quite different to a lot of the traditional value, you know, fundamental investors that we've had on in the past. So why don't we sort of get started by you talking through what what Harvest Lane does as its as its strategy to extract alpha from from the market? Oh, before you do that, JD. Oh, I want to I want to give you a bit more of a wrap, Ben, um, just to pay <laughs> a bit more context for money miners <laughs> about, on, about, uh, about Harvest Lane. So, I mean, like I, I, the way I understand Harvest Lane, you're an M&A focused fund manager. Basically, you get involved when deals are announced and well, typically are announced. And then you have a strategy that looks to make money um, on the way companies trade in that environment as things progress from an announced bid through to completion, maybe there's a counter bit along the way. You guys tend to get involved in most of the live transactions that are announced on ASX, um, yet manage to keep a pretty low profile publicly. That is, of course, unless yep. you've seen one of the AFR's headlines. I want to read <laughs> one of them out, which um, maybe the money miners have, have read when they check AFR. This one's titled, Harvest Lane, West Farmer's old hedge fund foe pops up at Silk Laser. The first paragraph reads, the hedge fund that made it made life difficult for West Farmers last year as Perth-based group pursued um, Australian pharmaceutical industries has begun building position in the conglomerate's latest target. So while, whilst West Farmers activity seems to be the love of AFR, um, we're going to have a discussion today broadly about you know, M&A, but also <laughs> related to the resources transactions that you guys um, have, have a bit of an idea about. Yeah, I, uh, I don't think we made too many friends at Wes Farmers um, like a couple of years ago when that all popped up. But, you know, I, I think that just kind of speaks to the fact that, um, you know, if we see an opportunity to, um, I guess, speak out and try and get the best deal on the table, um, then we're, we're kind of happy to do it. We typically don't like to do things publicly. Um, you know, as I'm sure you guys are aware, covering takeovers, there's um, something known as the truth in takeovers where, you know, you make public comments, you know, say you're going to vote. You, you mentioned that you're going to vote in favour for a specific transaction or anything like that. You know, if you deviate from that um, subsequently, then, um, you know, th- there's some pretty severe repercussions that come your way. Um, so I, I think we prefer to kind of do what we do outside of the public limelight, you know, this podcast notwithstanding. <laughs> um, you know, and it just sort of gives us options. It leaves us free to, you know, manoeuvre as we see fit. You know, we'll probably get into it at some point, um, you know, in the chat, but deals can kind of change and um, or they, they do, you know, things don't stay the same as they go through. So um, having that optionality there and that freedom to, you know, interact um, kind of opens up um, some, you know, pretty decent return streams. So I'm keen to expand on on how Trav described your investment style there. Ben, how do you describe to someone on the street what you guys do in in the market yeah so we we run an absolute return focused strategy it's slightly nuanced difference to being a pure m a hub um, type fund um, basically what we're trying to do is identify situations where um, 
we have good visibility over, I guess, um, extracting a positive return on the capital that we invest. You know, you sort of think about the typical uh, value or growth manager, they'll have a portfolio of stocks that, you know, are also going to be influenced by the market, whether the market goes up or down, you know, there's some sort of correlation that they have within their portfolio. Um, you know, if the market's down 20% and they're only down 10%, you know, you butte, they've outperformed by 10% and they're clipping fees along the way. Um, but you're still got a client at the end of the day that's lost money on their investment, you know, whether realised or unrealised. So I think our ethos comes around to looking at situations where, you know, rule number one, don't lose money. Um, and what situations, um, you know, at least that we can find can produce an outcome like that. So mergers and acquisitions, um, we found you know, that's the bread and butter of the strategy, but we also do look at a lot of other different things that sort of have the same parameters, just not that merger arbitrage tagline. So things like in anything corporate activity activity related, um, you've got demergers, liquidations, wind-ups, um, you know, listed investment companies converting to unlisted and you can redeem at NAV, um, little different things like that that just basically frame an investment where how can we derive a positive return from this investment? Can we quantify it? Can we quantify the risks associated with it? Um, and is the market offering us a good enough price um, where we feel that we're getting adequately compensated for the risk that we're taking on? All, know, all of those um, things you listed there, they're events that happen and um, you can you can quantify the time until the event completes. You can quantify the probability that event completes. You can quantify what your exposure is going to be because it's a, um, you know you're either getting script or cash or or there's some some way and, and those are all factors which you use I suppose to risk adjust your return and there's a, there's a time value for money associated and you need some alpha above that. Is that kind of like the the broad brush in which your strategy sort of paved? Yeah, the more we can quantify. Um, you know, what the investment case stacks up to be, you know, what our reward's going to be and quantifying the risks, we can then make a pretty good assessment as to, you know, how, um, you know, is, is it worth our time making the investment, I guess. Um, so, yeah, does that answer the question? Yeah, so you you described, you know, the rule, don't lose money, very, very Warren Buffett-like. You've got, <laughs> you've got quotes of Seth Klarman in your presentation. Do you describe yourself as a, a value investor? Um, no, uh, there's elements of it in terms of what we do, the way we, I guess, approach quantifying the downside. A lot of the valuation work that we do would come through that lens. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, there's an element of it for sure. Um, the value investors are so I'm, conscious of growth, of risk in the same way you are, but mm. they, they're focused on the compound returns, which isn't really part of your strategy because... Is yeah, it, so yeah. The, our strategy, like the individual situations, a bit of comes along, they're offering a, a fixed price, you know, um, most of the time anyway. Um, you know, you can quantify that and, you know, absent a counter bid or, you know, competitive tension there. That's kind of where the returns stop. You sort of take a value approach and, you know, you compound over time and who knows where it can, can end up. The way that we approach the compounding within the strategy is that we fill the whole portfolio through, you know, similar types of uh, investments or transactions, you know, whatever the, the deal is. And we make small amounts um, on each one. And over time, you know, crystallizing those gains, that in itself compounds the returns that we get as well, rather than, you know, letting the companies do it 
for us. I guess we kind of get in there and, and um, uh, yeah, it's, it's up to us to kind of uh, derive the, the compound returns from our strategy. So, so why start a fund in this style? It's not such a common strategy that we, we see in Australia. Exactly. Yeah. Um, is that the, no, no, no yeah. one else is doing it, so here, we'll do it. Yeah. And um, does, it sort of, does it sort of speak to your attitude towards risk, you know, less, less volatility? Is that one of, the, one of the reasons as well? Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's supposedly a, a lower volatility type strategy. Our numbers would tend to indicate that as well. So um, it's there. But I think, you know, we're, as a firm, we've been around for 10 years or so. We've um, got, you know, 120 to 130 mil under management, so we're not a big fish by any stretch of the imagination. Um, particularly in the Australian market, where we focus on everything, uh, it, it's essentially a capacity constrained strategy. So this isn't something that we're going to be able to run billions of dollars in. Um, you know, you start to price yourself out of transactions. You know that if you if you're looking at a hundred million dollar market cap transaction, um, and you've got a billion dollars to put to use, you can buy the company ten times over. So. You know, you just can't get in, in a situation like that. So I think a lot of players look at it and think, okay, it's too small fry. Um, you know, we've got so much capital to put to use. Maybe we can, you know, include it as part of the fringes of the portfolio to kind of juice returns. But um, I, I think there's very few players that will actually look at this opportunity properly and say, can we derive a meaningful return out of it for investors? The answer is yes, you can. It's just not going to be at the scale that, you know, you probably would see for your much larger fund managers. And, and we're comfortable with that. You know, we've, um, we, we've delivered a good return stream for investors. Our investors understand the strategy quite well. We feel there's a good enough niche for us to, to operate in. Um, you know, once we sort of get to levels where we think that the strategy can handle, you know, we'll, we'll close it off there um, and just sort of see if we can handle a little bit more. If not, you know, what else can we add to the strategy? Do we go offshore and try and replicate this in, in different markets or, you know, do you, you augment the strategy somewhat differently as well? So so that really builds your, your competitive advantage in, in the market. I'm keen to hear you touched on a few different types of corporate events that you're attracted to, but can you sort of flesh out a bit, a bit more the various, obviously you've got M&A, but, you know, asset sales and the like, what are the other sort of corporate events that you guys are attracted to? Yeah, so there's like things like asset sales, which are, I guess, somewhat similar to change of control transactions. Um, you know, you've got your, your standard takeover structures and your schemes of arrangement, which transfer control to the bidder. Um, asset sale will sort of be, you know, it's within the company itself. The company puts the sale of an asset to a vote, um, you know, but the, the bidder themselves, they don't want the whole company. They just want a particular asset within the company. Um, I think the best example I can kind of give you as to how we think about that, um, you know, real world would be prospect resources. Oh, I was going to say uh, St. Barbara Leonora. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, something similar like that, you know, where you've got the main asset and you can have some residual assets left over after that. But, um, you know, you've got a meaningful chunk of the company's existing market cap um, tied up in the asset that's proposed to be bought. Um, it, it goes to a shareholder vote, um, you know, and may or may not complete from there. Um, and then, you know, they'll typically guide to what they expect to be able to do with the cash. Um, and, you know, they might distribute all the proceeds to shareholders. They might retain a bit and, and distribute some. You know, that's all part of the process of discovering that. Um, you know, each individual transaction you have to assess on its merits. I guess, but they're like, different things um, could be uh, listed investment companies, which are essentially just funds like we run, but they're listed on the ASX. Um, I think it's a, a pretty 
poorly kept secret that they all trade at significant discounts to NTA. Um, and what we've seen in recent years is, you know, a bit of shareholder pressure um, on boards of these listed investment companies to kind of address that discount to NTA. And there's various ways you can do that. You can, uh, I guess, liquidate the portfolio and distribute the cash back to shareholders. Um, you can convert it to an unlisted trust. So you go from listed to unlisted um, and allow shareholders to transact at NAV. You know, you, you can make an application or redeem from the trust itself. Um, and, you know, the idea is that you, you can go into market and um, buy shares in these companies at big discounts. And once there's um, a catalyst to kind of close that discount, you just reap the benefit of the whole thing as well. So, okay. do, do you Again, push for it, those catalysts? Like, do you, so is, uh, is a strategy to build a position in one of these listed? Uh, no, so, I mean, not not typically. Um, you know, the strategy is basically reactive. We don't necessarily yeah. go out and look for the next M and A deal. We don't <laughs> for the next um, you know list investment company that's going to wind up. We have. Um, I think, yeah, there was another piece in AFR for you know, this investment company that we're in now agitating for. Um, mm. I think that was sort of more about we've actually held that for a while on expectation um, that that discount would narrow. Mm. Um, and I don't think the board was taking shareholders seriously. Um, so we we sort of started a bit of a process, but, um, you know, it, it's still trading there at a decent discount. So we'll sort of see how that um winds up in the coming in the coming months on a recent potty ben um i made a statement something like oh we're gonna have to bring on a, a corporate lawyer to explain all of the intricacies of, um, <laughs> of the different types of MA that we see out there what does it mean like what does it really mean and um you made yeah. a good point in in a chat that we had which is um you know, it might actually be interesting to get that perspective from buy side who who has a strategy around M and A because you kind of understand what it means to an investor maybe better than a lawyer and a lawyer will you know talk in a way that's very risk averse and, and very uninteresting to our listeners. So, I actually well, I think yeah, that, that's sort of what I was thinking. Yeah. I was, um, I was <laughs> I actually on holidays by the pool drinking a cocktail and yeah. heard you guys are thinking of the takeovers <laughs> on with the corporate lawyer. And I thought oh, no, we can do better than that. <laughs> I agree. So I, I think it's um, I actually be really curious to ask you like you know, to, to, to explain you know how you see the world of the different takeover mechanisms out there we've got takeovers we've got you know schemes of arrangement we talked about asset sales what really matters in in the actual mechanism chosen to enact a transaction from the purview of an investor um i, th I think there just needs to be uh, an understanding recognition that um, you know, they might achieve the same, out same outcome at the end of the day. You transfer control of the bidder, but how things are structured can have different implications for how you think about, um, I guess, setting up the investment case for one of these opportunities. So something like a takeover offer, it's an offer that's made direct to shareholders. Um, it's subject to corporations law. Um, you've got the takeovers panel and various regulatory bodies that oversee how that transaction progresses and what, I guess targets and bidders are both allowed to do, um, you know, in, in terms of frustrating bids or, um, you know, being able to withdraw bids on the bidder side and all that. Um, whereas a scheme of arrangement is somewhat different in that it's a legal contract between, initially at least, the the company and or the target company and the bidder as well. So it's not necessarily an offer direct to shareholders. Um, it's a legal agreement that sort of outlines how the transaction is going to go, but it doesn't necessarily have the same, uh, I guess, regulatory oversight 
um, in in its completeness as a, an outright takeover offer um, might be. So I, just uh, to, to dig into that a bit more, like when you see uh, a scheme of arrangement, like a deal announced by a scheme of arrangement, are you thinking like graded deal certainty that this actually completes? Like what are the, what are the you know, the internal sort of checklist as you relate it to the risk that you perceive that sort of um, the, the differentiating factors between the two? Um, look, I, I think we, we've got a broad checklist for all types of transactions that go along. Um, I think if we see sort of a scheme of arrangement, there's, you know, there's specific ones that we sort of look through. What's the la- legal language? Um, a big thing for us uh, is obviously it is walking away and deals breaking because um, that's sort of where you you lose the most money in a strategy like this. So mm. it's more just understanding, you know, these schemes arrangement documents, you know, the first one's maybe 150 pages long or something like that. So it's about going through the individual clauses and, and understanding under what circumstances um, a bidder can walk away, what, what triggers are there, um, what remedies are there at the bit of breaches, any um, of their obligations under the contract that they've signed, um, all that sort of stuff. And it also changes with takeovers as well, um, you know, in terms of how that's regulated and um, quantifying whether a bidder can walk or not as well. Um, so there's small minor details. They, they essentially achieve the same outcome, but I think having an understanding of the, the subtle differences between the two um, is definitely sort of a key part as to how to avoid some of the bigger blow-ups, um, you know, that, that can really hamper the returns of the strategy. So, so next time, JD, we get um, bogged down in what a fiduciary out means because of a scheme implementation <laughs> deed in relation to a scheme that's no longer happening. It's now an asset sale, but there's a fiduciary obligation not to shop and talk. And we'll, we'll come straight to you, Ben, with that question. <laughs> Won't waste our time. <laughs> no. Well, you guys don't want to talk about the Genesis Silver Lake oh, <laughs> Barbara deal anymore, do you? <laughs> Did you tune into that one? <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we've exhausted as much as the uh, money miners want to hear about that one. But, Ben, I'm I'm keen to really get into uh, an example that is really sort of tangible, relates to what the money miners can um, see and, you know, notice in the market when a deal is announced. So I want to go through an example of a a real-world transaction, the Liontown Albemarle deal going on right now. Very topical. Yeah, and the, the first question I've got, which I'm sure a lot of people have, and, um, it you know, it's a very common thing when, when a deal like this comes up, they want to know why the the target, so in this case, Liontown, doesn't trade at three bucks a share. You know, in some cases, it might trade higher. In this case, it was trading around 280, 285 for a while. What are the, the various reasons that you see that happening? I, I think it's, um, you know, I think... This was a question that came up in the, the Hooteroo chat and sort of had a first stab out. The first thing I sort of mentioned was the first of the time value of money. Um, so if you think about it, the, the deal that was announced um, from Albemarle, it's non-binding, it's indicative, it's going to take a bit of a while to, um, you know, if it does move to completion, it's, it's going to be four, five, six months down the track from here. So if, you know, we were to wait into market and start buying everything up to three three dollars um you know firstly doesn't make sense to to pay three dollars when you know that you're going to get three dollars back in six months time um it, it you know you'd rather have that cash now and not necessarily make the investment so there needs to be a bit of a discount in there um 
firstly to reflect the time value of money um, in that you're not actually going to receive that consideration for some months yet. Um, you know, what will actually influence it on top of that is just the general risks of the deal themselves. Um, so specific to Liontown, um, you know, it, it's indicative, non-binding. There's nothing that's been legally signed that compels Albemarle to go ahead with the deal. Um, I think, you know, it, it maybe uh, we wouldn't see it go back to it at this point of the transaction, but you sort of think about where Liontown was trading before Albemarle's interest was made public, I think, in, earlier this year. About, about half dollar, the price. Yeah, yeah dollar fifty, something like that. So where you would typically expect the shares to trade in the absence of this corporate activity, you know, the prior share price is probably a good good indication of where the market saw value. You know, we'd sort of call that the undisturbed share price. Um, so if you sort of think about Liontown, when it first reopened after, you know, the Albemarle made its $3 bid, uh, and the board chose to engage. Um, it was trading what two mid two eighties, maybe high two seventies, something like that. Um, call it two eighty. You make if if you make the investment and you're right and the deal completes, you make twenty cents. But if the deal falls over, share price could you know theoretically go back to a dollar fifty. We'll, we'll exclude you know Gina Reinhardt's participation <laughs> in the deal since, but um, you know trying to take it real world and apply just general examples to it. Um, you know, if the deal falls over, it goes from two eighty to a dollar fifty, you've got a dollar thirty of downside there. So your risk reward is basically twenty cent upside and a dollar thirty downside. Um, you know, you kind of need a bit of a, mm. a decent return to kind of make the risk reward equation stack up from there. Um, you know, we've obviously seen Gina come into market now and buy everything up to three dollars. And I think um, you know, I was at my desk before. I think the Lion Town price is slightly above that. You know, given Gina's interest, I don't necessarily think that um, absent the Albemarle deal that it now goes back to a dollar fifty. Um, but I, I think you know, I'm not necessarily sure you get much more than three dollars. Still, um, I don't necessarily think that Gina's there to um, you know provide all shareholders a higher bid or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, does that kind of cover it all off for you guys? Yeah. I I mean, and then on the contrary, like if he's not not the Lion Town example, but um, you know, quite often you'll see uh, an agreed um, an agreed takeover uh, offer, and then immediately shares are trading at a premium. And, and in my mind, that's sort of factoring in the likelihood that there'll be a counter bidder enter entering the arena because you're you're not getting remunerated yes. for the um for the for the time value of money uh it's it's the no. opposite so i mean maybe you could talk to an example where you see that, that that sort of play out yeah um so that you know if it's trading at a premium it's pretty typical that the market's kind of pricing that you know there's some more value to be squeezed out of it whether that's maybe you know, Minicor is, a, is a good one to talk about right because you yeah. saw you saw why lou um or Minkor announced that Wailu had had a you know an on market uh, takeover offer for a dollar forty. Um, not sure if yeah. you listened to that episode with with Joel Turco and Luca Gikavasi. I, I did, yeah. There was a um, that's a good point. <laughs> um, I, I think there was one point you mentioned that you know they they did the on market takeover and instructed their broker to put the trade on yeah. uh, on the screen, and then by the time they did that, they sort of found out that there was you know already tens of millions of shares there, you know, taking priority on the queue. And we actually had that episode playing in the office. So when that, 
that thing popped up, it was sort of like, a, oh, yeah, cool, that was us. Thanks. Thanks for the shout-out, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, in the time that it took Joel to dial up the broker and say, uh, $1.40 jacket on screen, all of it, you know, you're, you've already bought everything before $1.40 and the share price is already well, yeah. $1.60. We, we haven't necessarily right. bought it, but we've just got priority on the queue. Gotcha. Um, yeah. You know, just in case. Look, um, yeah. But maybe talk about the dynamics of a different broker next time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it traded as, I mean, on the following day, I think it traded as high as, as you know, the 160s, 170s. Um, yeah. yeah I think it got all the way up to 167. Yeah. yeah. And how do you, how do you, so in, in that case, the market's pricing in something different to the dynamic we talked about with Liontown. What, what do you say yeah, that so is? I think that's a very different risk reward equation to what, you know, we were discussing with the Liontown bid. That was an unconditional on-market offer. Um, so the way we think about that is your absolute worst case scenario, all you have to do is share, sell the shares on market and you get a dollar forty. You know, it's not like um, you're, you're going to get 70 cents at the end of the day, you, provided that you actually take action with respect to the offer. You don't just sort of sit there and wait for the offer to expire. But, you know, it, it, it's a very risk-free um, transaction in the sense that, you know, you're not worried where the shares are trading before the offer. Um, because it's within your control to actually realize the dollar forty price. Um, so if you think about, you know, I think it resumed trade at dollar forty four. Um, so you know the orders that we actually had at a dollar forty didn't actually get hit. But if you think about, um, you know, where it opened at a dollar forty four, it's only four cents higher than your absolute guaranteed downside. Uh, and at the time, uh, I think the expectation was that maybe BHP, you know, being the, the key off-take contract for the underlying asset. Maybe they would, you know, look to come over the top of Wailu. At that time, Wailu weren't even best in final. So, um, you know, depending on how acceptances uh, went into the offer, there was a, an opportunity potentially that they would lift their offer as well. So you're kind of really only paying $0.04 cents per share um, to get, I, I guess, not a free look but a, a cheap option on, you know, potentially realising further value. So you sort of saw that as a kept rising and the expectation was BHP might come over the top and um, you'd have a bit of a, a bidding war um, like we've seen, uh, I guess, uh, for Western areas where IGO and, and Wiley was sort of um, entangled there as well. So obviously that didn't eventuate into a bidding war. Uh, I think, you know, the what transpired in that deal is pretty well covered by you guys and, um, you know, subsequently in the, in the chat with Luca. Um, but yeah, that's just kind of how we approach those situations where, you know, indicative non-binding, there's a lot more risk in the transaction completing. There's no nothing legally compelling the, build, the, the bidder yet to actually go through with the deal versus something that's unconditional on market. You've very much got that downside quantified. Um, you can start to throw a little bit more uh, of the portfolio behind a, a transaction of that nature. And so, yeah, everything we kind of do looks at, each individual transaction through that lens, what's the inherent risk of the deal, where's the current market pricing, you know, implying that the reward is, um, and is that the right price that we think we should be paying for, um, you know, this transaction? I'm keen to unpack how, you know, like I, I get the strategy. I just sort of, I'm trying to think of how it works in the context of sort of, you know, portfolio management because you can't be 
too exposed to any one strategy if in the situation you talked about with lying down like the downside is like halving your money like a fund can't do that um so i mean how many like how yeah. many how many you know how many individual opportunities are you exposed to at any one point in time and you know at the same time like how do you pick which opportunities to get involved in in the first place <laughs> That's it. I mean, we've got a, a screening process for the whole thing, but um, we also, you know, there's numerous transactions on foot at any time. Um, we might have, I think we've got a hard limit of 20% of the portfolio can be in any one position. Um, that might seem pretty scary, uh, but it really only happens very, very occasionally. And it's in situations like MinCore where, um, you know, your downside your actual, is caps. <laughs> your downside's cap. You've got four cents of risk, but a yeah. dollar forty-four of exposure. So we sort of think about it. You strip out that gross exposure to actual capital at risk. It's, they're two different kinds of things. So we would never put anywhere near that amount of the portfolio, um, you know, in, into Lion Town as it currently is, um, for example. Um, so yeah, that's, we we sort of filter for everything that that comes through anytime there's an announcement on the ASX of something that kind of fits into our wheelhouse. Like we have, we have tools that track every deal. As soon as an announcement's popped up, and, you know, tools that scrape it for keywords, AFR articles, all that sort of stuff, trying to find where that next opportunity is. Um, now we've are, got, are you screening for deals that actually have a relatively decent probability of eventuating? Um, and filtering, every, are you, are you filtering out the stuff that's just like, this ain't going to happen. And, yeah, and so it's, you, you can't get in, involved in every transaction that pops up. There's going to be some that are just so low quality um, yeah. that don't pass enough of that checklist to just say, look, it's not um, it's not something that we're going to participate in. It, it might also be a fact that we want to buy it, but the market pricing of it is just too optimistic mm. and it, we're just kind of priced out of the transaction itself as well. You know, um, Just because of the transaction there and you can see it complete, you don't necessarily have to buy it. Um, and a lot of our returns, I guess, haven't necessarily been um, a function of picking all the winners. It's been about identifying which ones are going to lose and sort of minimising the exposure. Ideally, none. You want to have all the ones that win um, and obviously avoid the ones that, that don't fall over, but sometimes things are going to happen that just come out of left field. Um, so it, it's about checking for what, you can actually identify as being the key things that might actually throw a deal into disarray. Ben, it actually sounds very much like a bond investor. You know, you're, you're <laughs> looking for the the ones that make it and pay your pay your coupon and don't yeah. don't fall over. And sort of, you know, playing on that sort of tangent, your benchmark is the the RBA cash rate. That sort of yep. also ties in with a you know a limited volatility, you know, low risk type of return prof- profile. That you're, you're targeting. I'm just keen to hear a bit Mate, more about. You'll be the only fundy we ever interviewed that has their benchmark is the RBA cash rate. Normally it's the <laughs> ASX Small Resources Fund Index. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, I think we've had a bit of feedback over the years, I guess. Um, you know, RBA's cash rate is probably a bit of a cheeky benchmark, um, you know, w- without necessarily understanding the strategy and the context that it is. So, yeah. Um, the way we sort of look at it is we're not really taking market risk. So for each of these individual transactions, um, once a takeover bid is announced, it essentially becomes a probability game of whether this deal completes or not. You know, whether the US market is up 2% or down 2% or, you know, there's ructions out of China, um, you know, all these macro overlays that 
can see the market swing one way or another, you know, subject to how the transactions are actually structured, they shouldn't really have any impact as to whether the deal completes or not. You know, all of it is, I guess, contained within the documents that you can read. Um, so the idea is that, you know, we might be in a position and the market could go up 10%, but because, you know, it's subject to the deal being completed, there's no upside for us. We don't get the benefit of that market movement. Um, and similarly, when the market's down, you know, we're not really expecting the shares to trade down in line with the market because it's subject to a takeover. You know, it, it's becomes its own isolated probability game. So to sort of benchmark to, I guess, uh, you know, an ASX index or a benchmark, like a, you know how the 200 is going, it's not really reflective of what the strategy is designed to do. Um, and, you know, we've sort of had comments, why don't you make it RBA cash plus a certain hurdle uh, on, on top of that? Um, firstly, there's uh, we, we've got a management fee technically for the public fund that we run. Um, that's mainly designed there as an expense recovery mechanism. It's not actually management fees that go to Harvest Lane. We um, we only draw fees based on performance. So you know it's the ethos that we have to make our clients money for us to be able to charge fees. Um, you know you run a public fund. There are certain costs that are unavoidable. Um, but all of that is sort of provision for under the management fee and we don't actually draw down on that. Any sort of excess currently is, you know, released back into the fund. So, um, you know, it's a capacity-constrained strategy. We need to eat as well um, and we prefer to eat off our own performance rather than sort of just clipping the asset base. Um, but there's also the broader concept of, you know, if you start adding a, a return hurdle over and above the RBA cash rate, we start chasing potential deals that, aren't worth it on a risk reward, but we just have to kind of do it to make um, the return stack up, I guess. Mm. Um, and the reason that we have the track record that we have is because we've avoided the deals that we have and been in the ones that we have. So you start to change the hurdle rate. Um, it pushes up further, pushes us up further up the risk curve and you, you're essentially trying to chase a little bit more risk to earn the same yeah. Um fees, I guess, you know, it's sort of aligning our incentives to make sure that we're taking the appropriate risk and remunerated properly for it and not sort of incentivized to go chasing risky stuff. If, if you're thinking about, you know, your returns in the context of the RBA cash rate, I imagine you're extremely thoughtful about hedging out your exposure um, in certain instances where an M&A transaction involves yeah. script. Yeah, it's um, exactly. So, there's multiple considerations. Yeah, you can offer your cash and script, um, and so yeah, you you would think typically for a takeover under script, there's a lot of market exposure there. You know, you'll get paid in the bidder shares rather than a fixed price, and the bidder so, shares can trade very in a very volatile manner. Um, yeah, so absolutely. I'm kind of keen to unpack like what are the mechanics of hedging out your exposure in the instances yeah. where there's script consideration. Well, you're going to have to make me disclose that we're evil short sellers. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, Off so, the podcast uh, now, long only. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not going to make too many friends in the Huda Rich Show. Hey. Um, no, look, mm. I, I think we, we come at it from the approach of, you know, under a script transaction, you can be right. You can buy the, the shares and the deal completes and you're right. You know, the investment case stacked up, but the bit of share price can be quite volatile and move around. And it might be that, you know, the implied value based on where the share price was at the start of the bid is not necessarily where it ends up. 
um, and you can be right but also lose money. So we take a proactive approach to take that, I guess, market risk out of the equation um, and, you know, for the script deals, we'll look to find borrow on the bidding company and short sell in advance. So the idea is that you kind of lock in the price that you're going to get under the takeover offer um, and you, you sort of fully hedge it out there. So you've taken out the market risk. As the bidder goes down, um, the implied value for the target goes down as well, but you also um, get the profit on the short, which sort of offsets the losses on the, on the long so side. So there's, there's an example we've spoken about, and you don't need to disclose if you're involved at all, but we've spoken about Parenti and DDH1 somewhat recently. Yep. And just so the, the listeners can sort of relate it, the, the share price from Parenti from when the deal was announced has come off 10 or 15 odd, odd cents. So you can sort of see that reflected also in the DDH share price, which has dropped yeah. back from 93 odd to I think 82 cents because so much of that, there was a bit cash component, but so much was in Parenti script. Yeah, uh, it's something similar with um, Essential Metals as well, which you know we're, we're in both yeah. DDH1 and the Essential Metals deal. And I think when um, Develop first, announced that that bid, you know, their share price at the time implied a 56 cent value for Essential. Mm. Um, you know, it's rallied in recent days, but, you know, developed loss somewhere between 20 and 25%, I think, off the top of my head. And I want to go back and check those numbers. But, um, you know, the, it's just a function of being a bidder when you, you offer consideration in the form of shares rather than cold hard cash is sometimes at the mercy of what the market is prepared to price Strip out, and sometimes the market, I guess, might take a different view to the success of the transaction mm-hmm. and what the management team do themselves as well. In the case of the essential deal with Develop, I imagine just based on um, you know Develop's shareholders and size, it's actually, it'd actually be pretty tricky to get borrow on Develop. So hedging out your exposure if if you're buying essential, expecting completion, would be a much trickier equation. Is that right? Uh, it is, yeah. So it's difficult to source and it's expensive when you, you do get it. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, when you think about the return profile that you're looking at, to we call it setting the spread where you, you go long the target and short the bidder, um, the return profile also needs to capture in the cost of what it is to actually borrow the shares and short sell in the first place as well. Isn't the cost of borrow is it sometimes variable as well? So you do have some kind of variable exposure to the, to the borrow, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's it's dependent on if your prime broker can locate the stock. You know, for something that's in the uh, in the indices, the ASX three hundred. Um, you know, you've got large index funds which are all passive. They're they're just tracking the index. They they're price agnostic. Whether the price goes up or down, they don't really care. They just have to track the index. Um, so always, what they'll do is you can is always get borrow if there's Vanguard, State Street, or BlackRock around, mate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it, it makes no difference to them, and they can clip the the ticket by loaning the shares out. Um, so it's a lot easier to source borrow from those kinds of, of bidders. But it's when you get to the really small end of the market where you know it's it's a bidder that's um, there's not much available. There's no real institutional ownership. Um, there's not much borrow going around. It's, it's just difficult to source. You know, we sort of factor that into whether we take a position in a stock like that. You know, we don't like to take the market risk in those transactions. You know, we can be right but still lose money. Um, so anything that we can control, we will. Um, and, you know, for some of these script deals, borrows a big functionality as to how exposed we are to these trades. So, Ben, there's an area where you guys can 
get excess returns. And what I'm talking about is deal sweeteners and kickers and counter bids, most importantly, if, yeah. if another company comes in over the top. So how... My first question is how active do you guys get in sort of instigating or pushing <laughs> or, you know, taking a view on whether a bid is a lowball bid or whatever to, you know, try and juice up your returns a bit? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd say I've got to be careful how we uh, answer this. You know, I don't want to make too many enemies and give forwards <laughs> heart attacks whenever we get on the register. But, um, look, uh, we're, we're there in the first instance as a friendly party. Um, you know, our strategy sort of leans us towards seeing deals done. Um, but, you know, we've been around the traps long enough, understand deal landscapes and mechanics and, and all that sort of stuff that if we see an avenue to realising a better deal than what's currently on the table, then, you know, we'll, uh, I, I guess, do the work to kind of um, try and rustle it up. You know, we don't necessarily go and, and find bidders ourselves to lodge a counter bid, but, you know, we'll talk to, deal advisors, company management, you know, to the existing bidder if we need to, anyone that we need to, to um, I guess just make sure that the best deal is actually on the table. If there's more to be gained somewhere else by a different structure um, and all that, I mean, there's transactions we've been involved in where, you know, there's multiple bidders and you sort of work with, um, you know, you, you can sort of work with either of them to sort of, make one a kingmaker and in the process um, deliver better returns than what might otherwise have been achievable had we just sort of sat out. So uh, I think, you know, we, we talk about uh, hedge funds coming on the podcast, revealing all the secrets, and it's just going to be a, a, um, <laughs> a know, giving away episode. all the alpha for free. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, look, yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff that we do in the background that I don't necessarily think is as easily replicable. The yeah. strategy itself is pretty simple to understand, but, there's a lot of work that goes into it. Um, we do a lot of analysis. It's not just like a, you know, you buy the deal and don't know anything about the company. We get involved. We speak to people in and around the deal just to make sure, um, you know, the best ones on the table. We'll do industry analysis. Who are the competitors? Um, you know, who else could make a, a bid? What capacity do they have currently to, to get involved? Um, so Ben, how, do, how so does yeah. it work on a on a timing front? Like these deals are announced, and the stock can be trading very shortly after. From a you know a fundamental analysis point of view, you getting up to speed on whether it is in fact a good deal and everything. How does it actually look in reality? It's also the independent expert, which can add, add a bit on short to your negotiating leverage. Mm. Yeah, that, that's sort of what we've relied on in the past as well. Um, sorry, JD, I just missed your your question there. Sorry. Just keen to hear how fundamental analysis plays its sort of role. When you, you hear about these deals and the stock can be trading again quite quickly, how do you get up to speed on your actual view on whether it's a good deal or not? Yeah, so typically when a deal is announced to the ASX, you've got an hour to kind of make a, an investment decision at least initially. Um, so that's sort of what we have, the checklist there to go through, what characteristics does this deal have that sort of fit within the general mould. Um, you know, we, we're reasonably speedy at making an initial investment decision, you know, within that hour so that we're ready to go when trade resumes. Um, but from there, there's a whole lot of legwork that we go in to actually do, you know, company analysis. We, we don't necessarily need to, you know, go in and build out 10-year DCFs and what the growth profile kind of looks like. Um, if you sort of think about it from the perspective that the bidder has actually offered a price, you can kind of reverse engineer 
the value I guess they're offering to pay for the company as well. Um, and so what we'll do is we'll go in and, and just try and see if we can underwrite that valuation and just sort of say, you know, is this an absolute knockout bid? Um, you look at the company's financials, maybe it's a stupid earnings multiple that it's never traded in its life, um, you know, but alternatively it might be at a significant discount to what the asset backing of the company is. It might be at a severe discount to where uh, different, I guess, peers that are also trading on the ASX are trading at as well, um, you know, just because one, you know, a competitor is trading at a 10 times multiple, for example, and this one's being taken out at a five, um, you know, there might be justifiable reasons as to why that's the case, but we do a lot of work to understand, uh, I guess, whether that's an appropriate um, takeover take value as well. Um, and like Trav said, we can kind of look at those independent expert reports as well. Um, One that comes to mind, know, Ben, where you got a sweetener, I'm guessing you're part of it because um, you mentioned Wailu earlier. It was it was the the acquisition of Western Areas. IGO had a bid yeah. while they got involved and actually you know bought shares above the offer price. I think there was an independent technical expert that um, said it wasn't it wasn't fair, but it, but it was reasonable. And then there was a, not not a, fair, but reasonable. Yeah, yeah, and a kicker involved. So maybe just sort of it'd be useful to get your lens on unpacking how you're making a decision along that chain of involvement and what you're thinking along the way. Yeah, I think a lot of those deal specifics influence the ultimate outcome. So I think IGO initially proposed something like 320 or 330 a share, somewhere around that mark, maybe 325. Um, and then we saw Wailu come into market and buy above the offer price. Um, and then, you know, a, a few weeks later, the transaction announced that there's some sort of an agreement reached with the bidder. IGO um, for a downstream facility as well. And under takeover law, all shareholders kind of have to be treated equally. You know, the price that you offer to one shareholder has to be identical. There can be no collateral benefits. Um, so we saw something like that as, you know. Don't, don't say that to them. It's an empty box. You can't value it. It's an agreement to agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the ASIC tagged the votes at the meeting for a specific reason. So, um you know, it's arguable how you kind of define that. I guess if there was a true injustice to the whole thing, um, you know, you could sort of see what avenue there is for remedy on that. But I think, you know, it, it was let slide, I guess, because um, IGO ended up lifting their bid ultimately and all shareholders kind of got the benefit mm. of that bump as well. Um, In that negotiation you know, piece, um, are you – are you playing an active role in the discussions with advisors to get the kicker? Because presumably um, they're just trying to get a deal done, the advisors. And um, yes. and you're there on the register. I imagine you have a meaningful enough position in the context of everything because um, so a lot of people leave the register during live M&A and you come in and imagine you have yep. have, a, have a decent size stake in the company at this point. Um, are you pretty actively trying to negotiate the kicker outcome even though it's IGO bidding against itself at this point? Um, initially, uh, we're not we, – we don't come onto the register immediately to kind of, you know, mm. um, force this, a higher price or anything yeah. like that. It was just the, the confluence of circumstances totally. for this particular transaction. The fact that, I, that um, while he's buying higher and the independent expert says it's not fair, it gives you enough to kind of – you know, substantiate an argument to get a kicker yeah. and be part of that and, discussion. You know, yeah, it is. It's a simple call from there to yeah. you know go to the company. What's going on? Yeah. You know, is there a collateral 
collateral benefit shareholders, um, you know, what can be done about this? Because clearly one camp's being offered something that's not being offered to everyone else. And, um, you know, that's sort of where the conversation opens up. I think specific for Western areas, there was actually a um, London-based hedge fund, Odie Asset Management, that was, um, they were kind of publicly campaigning uh, that the bid needed to be lifted. So I guess they were kind of doing the heavy work for us in that transaction as well. So, gotcha. um, you know, we're not always alone in these <laughs> conversations as well. Um, you know, we like to think that we've got a lot of the market to ourselves as well, but invariably there is a bit of similar interests and similar type of strategies from, you know, whether it's offshore hedge funds or um, some of the bigger institutional players as well. Um, you know, we're often, you know, some or Sometimes with a sole voice, um, other times it's in conjunction with a, a few others that, you know, you don't necessarily have plastered all over the ASX platform, um, you know, announcements and all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, look, I think part of our due diligence process is you know, making sure we, we talk to the company and, and understand the deal landscape. And um, if there's a better offer on the table that we think is achievable, then, you know, we've got no hesitations to sort of um, raise a point to that effect. And I'd like to ask a, a couple questions about some deals that are happening right now. If you if you're keen to share a couple opinions, the yeah, first sure. one the first one that I want to talk about was announced I think a bit over a month ago. It's the Orcorp deal, Silvercorp taking them out, yeah, well mer- yes. merging with them rather. I want to hear how you are interpreting whether where the share prices are. I know initially they, you know, traded. You know, it wasn't a significant tick up for for Orcorp how it was trading initially. What do you sort of make of how things have sort of played out since then? Um, yeah, I think that's a pretty interesting one. Um, it, it's sort of I don't necessarily know that we thought Silvercorp would be the the logical bidder for um, the Nizaga project. So I might be pronouncing that incorrectly. Neither, but, neither um, did we, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean that that sort of took us a bit by surprise. Uh, I think Silvercorp at the time were actually trying to buy Celsius Resources, you know, mm-hmm. a non-binding deal there that we're on the sidelines for, thankfully. Um, but, you know, it's something that we kind of look at, you know, as part of the – it's an ongoing process now. I think they put up an up- update this week as to how things are progressing with Silvercorp. Um, you know, they've got a – it's a scheme of arrangement, so it's a friendly deal. They're working together to get it done. Um, there's quite a lot of spread still there. You know, there's a lot of – if you know the Silvercorp shares continue to trade where they are, um, there's meaningful upside still to come out of the deal. Um, yeah, as it progresses, we would expect kind of conditions to be ticked off and the transaction be de-risked, and it would trade closer to what the implied value is. You know, if you're asked, you can go out and, and short sell Silvercorp as well um, to kind of lock in that that upside. Um, it's also quite interesting. I think you know there is potentially. Um, you know, the way we look at it, can we get more of a return than is currently on the table? You sort of look at, well, who else could actually buy the asset? Who does it make sense for? Um, you know, you guys are quite tapped into, you know, the mining industry and who it could be. We speculated. No we speculated yeah, Perseus speculate. in the past. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, I think yeah. every man and his dog knows that Perseus is, you know, the Sudanese project is on the back burner and, and, you know, they need to sort of extend out that life of mine profile. They've got a huge war chest to go go through it. So, mm. um, you know, that's something that we would sort of look at and, you know, position maybe maybe Perseus take a look. Um, one one sort of mechanic that I guess I don't necessarily like about the Silvercorp transaction was that they did an equity raise to Silvercorp. 
mm. at 40, 48 cents a share, I think, when the deal implied value was 60 cents. Um, and it was for, I think, roughly equivalent 15% of the company itself. So, um, you know, it, it's similar reasons to why we actually set out of the, the Celsius deal where you've got this upfront placement, I guess, which puts Silvercorp into a strong position. You sort of think, you know, counter bids and, and counter offers need to actually be able to complete. And if an existing bidder has a substantial stake in the company, you know, you need a 75% voting majority to pass a scheme of arrangement. You need 90% of a company under a takeover structure to move to compulsory. Um, if you've just given away 15% of the company at a discount to the price that they're paying under the offer, it kind of gives them a bit of a, a hand up. Um, mm. You know, they're, they're starting from a strong position, um, you know, to, to fend off, I guess, any sort of counterbid that, you know, I'm not saying that Perseus is or isn't entertaining an idea of coming over the top here. It's just something that we would look at and go, okay, that's maybe potentially a bit of a roadblock as to how that transaction might progress. Um, and the margin, so this could be deterred by that. Yeah. Like- yeah, it certainly makes it more difficult for them. It makes it more expensive because, you know, there's more shares on issue than was prior to the deal announced. Um, you know, they've got to pay out Silvercorp and presumably they're going to have to do it at a price that's higher than 48 cents. So it makes it incrementally more expensive for Perseus. Um, there's also something in the, the scheme of arrangement docs for the Orcorp transaction. Um, you can sort of see the date as to when both Silvercorp and Orcorp entered into a confidentiality agreement. You know, Silvercorp's made the offer and they've been allowed access to the data room to sort of see non-public information to firm up the proposal. Um, and that's dated all the way back in March. So we're sort of coming up to six months' time. Um, you know, that these these two parties, you know, that have an agreed deal in place have sort of been working together, discussing the transaction. Um, I'm assuming that the advisors that they have in place um, would have shopped, they shopped the asset. before, yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, six months down the line, you know, time sort of kills all hope, I guess, of counterbids and all that sort of stuff. But it's just another factor that sort of says, you know, there's a potential for it to happen, but there's little incremental factors that sort of make us think, okay, it's maybe not as likely as um, we would otherwise like it to be and therefore we shouldn't necessarily allocate too much on the expectation that there's going to be a counter here and we'll, we'll see a full-on bidding war. I've never looked at the docs for the date the confidentiality agreement was signed. That's genius. Okay. That's bloody genius. Yeah. I've, yeah, that, okay, I might actually be giving away some alpha. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, it actually would have related to some of the commentary we had on the next one I want to talk to you about and that's um you know west gold and Remelius both bidding for musgrave and i yep. imagine you've checked for the same date on the ultimate docs in the case of um musgrave and, yeah. and Remelius. Remelius. i'm yeah. fascinated to know if that, that the ca they had signed was signed before Pre-dated. west gold um lobbed their hostile bid uh i think i remember this because i saw you guys i heard you guys talking about it in one of the, the podcasts and i made a point to go back and actually check the yeah. timeline of events. Yeah, yeah. You know, because you had, you had that day before West Cole revealed it had made an offer where there mm-hmm. was that um, spike in the share Anomalous price. trading, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think from memory, West Gold actually made the bid on 2nd of June. Yeah. Uh, and you can see the Remelius, you know, they signed a bid implementation grade and it referenced the confidentiality deed on the 4th, so two days later. And then wow. I think the 5th the fifth was the day where the, the share price sort of spiked a bit. Um, you know, public holiday in WA and then West Gold sort of announced to market on the 6th. So, 
Um, it was a bit of an interesting timeline. Uh, I think we looked at it from the perspective. Um, it's actually a good case study as to how uh, Musgrave was sort of guiding to market throughout the whole time the West Gold offer was live, saying, you know, don't take any action. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the first point they were talking about, if you accept the deal now, you sort of lose out um, the option of taking up, you know, a, a counter bid as well or, you know, a, another offer that may or may not be forthcoming. So you sort of work back through the dates and you can you can tell that they were sort of working something up quite feverishly with Remelius while West Gold was trying to, um, mm-hmm. you know, publicly, um, you know, Close the deal, I guess. Um, right. So, you know, we so, sort of looked at that communication and, and sort of worked out, cool, there might be a, a pretty good um, chance that there's something that comes over the top. I think everyone knew that Remelius would be a likely counterbitter for it. Um, you know, at that stage, I don't think anyone really had any knowledge that Remelius was actually in the data room, you know, confirming up their existing bid. So, um, yeah, and, and you've got to think West Gold came unannounced, unsolicited, and didn't get board engagement. You, you sort of see a friendly deal will typically have, you know, the two boards working together. There's some sort of agreement that's signed that dictates how the process is going to run and there's cooperation there, whereas this is very much a, an upfront, you know, we're not taking that off our don't do anything, we're not engaging. Um, you know, all those little telltale signs of the life of the transaction that, that gave you a bit of an indication um, that something else might be forthcoming. So, yeah, interesting one. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, wow. That's um, I'm going to be looking out for that one pretty often now. <laughs> You've clued me on. Yeah. 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 We'll be trading alongside you in the, in the screen then shortly, won't we? <laughs> yeah. There's, there's one, one more that comes to mind I'm pretty curious about. And there was a comment you, you made to, um, to us in a pride chat that you sort of look at DDH1 and Parenti and, and, and see that it could be a possibility that it might actually not end up getting over the line unless there's a kicker involved what do you mean by that and how do you come to that conclusion oh look i I think that's something that we you know saw the transaction progress the scheme book that was out there's an independent expert there um again it's just a confluence of factors that kind of shape how we start to think about these deals as they progress um you know in ddh1's um situation they obviously signed this deal i think late june whatever it was um parenti was a dollar twenty dollar twenty five and the applied value of the, the transaction was a dollar one. Um, in the time since Parenti share price had fallen, you know, earnings had kind of been reported from both parties, um, and the implied value of Parenti's offer was sort of back at the level where DDH one was prior to uh, the deal being announced. So you sort of think about quantifying the downside and, and you know capturing that upside. If the share price is back to where it was before the deal was announced then, you know, arguably the downside is mostly already priced in. Um, so you then look at the deal on its merits um, from there to sort of say, well, does DDH actually need the deal to get ahead if you're not really being given that premium for control? Um, you know, you, you're sort of where you are before the deal was announced. You know, can you take it or leave it? And I think we sort of looked at the earnings results of both companies, what the independent expert report had to say. Um, I think you can make a pretty pretty good case that the independent expert report um, put too low an earnings multiple on DDH1's earnings. Um, and then on the consideration side for Parenti, it sort of had a component of, um, you know, the market's not currently pricing the value of the deal to Parenti shares. So, um, you know, once it's all complete, 
DDH1 shareholders will get the benefit of a re-rate in the shares. And that's sort of a, an equation that says, um, you know, part of your consideration is dependent on the market pricing that in. Um, you sort of say, well, would they be better off doing the deal or just going alone? Um, I, I think the commercial reality of what it is is you've got a substantial shareholder in DDH1 um, that is looking for an exit. Oak Tree, uh, you know, they, they listed this a couple of years back. Um, you know, it, it's just one way that they can look to exit a transaction. You, if you can't sell it in whole to anyone, you sort of IPO it and sort of see where the market takes it. Um, I, I think, you know, a couple of years of just sort of a, a not really gaining any traction on the market. Um, you know, they've got to return funds to investors. They're looking for an exit. You know, you, you sort of tee up a deal. Um, I think a counter-argument to it all is, you know, if DDH1 decided to go it alone and not take up this deal, then you're going to have this overhang of a, a huge shareholder that, you know, has telegraphed the fact that they're looking to sell their interest in the, in the company. So, you know, it's sort of going to hamper any sort of, uh, I, I guess, market re-rate that DDH1 might get in the absence of a deal from there. So, look, I, I think Parenti probably ran a bit of a risk, um, you know, looking at where their share price was and the value that's actually delivered to DDH1 shareholders, you know, as it stands now based on the existing ratio. Um, you know, you sort of run a bit of a gauntlet down to the shareholder vote that says, do we, um, you know, do we lift to try and just make sure it's an absolute certainty or do we risk it and hope that, you know, to the DDH1 shareholders can actually see that there's enough um, of a rationale in the deal to, uh, to vote it across the line. So, um, yeah, th- that's kind of how we thought about it. We're obviously there. We, we were in favour of the deal. Um, and I think, yeah, proxy cutoff was earlier today, so we should have a bit of an outcome. Uh, see what that happens. Meetings on Monday, so see how we go. Beautiful. Is there, is there anything else... Ben, that we should uh, we should be paying attention to, or that you think you should be on our radar, <laughs> or that we haven't covered in this conversation because it's been wicked. Something we should get active about. <laughs> um, I don't want to give too much away. I've already given away all the alpha. <laughs> no, look, honestly, um, it, it's been a good chat. Um, I think, yeah, we've sort of gone through most most things. I don't know that there's. I'm trying to think, what do we think is the best? potential counterbitter for an opportunity. I, off the top of my head, I've got nothing for you guys. So <laughs> we'll have to keep that one under wraps. Um, oh, good. I think there was plenty in there for the, for the money miners to pick apart, understand and sort of, you know, see in, in the markets in the coming periods how it sort of actually plays out and hopefully have a bit of a better understanding of how all the machinations of a M&A deal fall into place. It's wicked. I'd love the, yeah. um, the chance to, to dial you in next time there's a, a live bid and uh, just trading <laughs> at a certain price. Just get your, get your, your two snippets commentary on why it's trading yeah, that way. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Let's do it. We'll just make sure, um, yeah, make sure we've got our fill first. Yeah. And then we'll, yeah. we'll <laughs> Borrowed, already done. Everything's sort of cool. Yeah, love it. Appreciate yeah. your time, Ben. No, but thank you very much for having me on. Wicked, love man. the work that you guys have been putting out for the last few months. So keep it up. Thanks yeah, a lot, mate. great stuff. Awesome. Yeah. Cheers, boys. Boys, I think the appropriate way I should do this next time is actually like like listen to it after I do the intro and in between <laughs> doing the outro because we're just it's a pre-record. It's a good strategy. Just to have a good like um, my face will tell the story, mm. but I envisage that would have been a very interesting chat, lads. When you actually listen to this, your mm. response will be like, "Wow, I learned a shitload. Thanks, Ben." 
Cheers. <laughs> Thanks in advance, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's another what? another great one and a bit different, you know, a bit of a different style like we sort of get into in the intro there to plenty of the other fund managers we've spoken with. So I hope the money miner's got a bit of value from that one. Is the arbitrage strategy, was that a was that a big a big ticket or just one little thing in a big wheel? Well, well the main that? thing that they do is, yeah, make arbitrage, but that's not um, a giant yield. You get exposed to this upside when there's like a kicker and a counter bid and because they've bought their company being bid, they you know, ride the upside of that. So it's a, you know, arbitrage is the default thing that's got to meet a threshold. They've got the big, you know, kicker when, um, when, when it's a contested deal. Can it go horribly wrong? Yep. It can, yep. as we get into in the uh, in the interview. Mm, look forward to it. Right, thanks to all the partners as always. Smack Power and Technology, Anytime Exploration Services, JP Search, top of the show was, anytime said them already, Terra Capital. And K-Drill. And K-Drill. Thanks, Abe, guys. Cheers, money miners. Enjoy your weekend. The information contained in this episode of Money of Mine is of general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular person. Before making any investment decision, you should consult with your financial advisor and consider how appropriate the advice is to your objectives, financial situation and needs.